It's the Friday before the Labor Day weekend, the unofficial end to summer. The weather looks sunny, but pretty hot. We hope everybody enjoys it. We will not have an episode of Today in Ohio on Monday. After today, we'll be back on Tuesday talking about three days of news. But first, we have the Friday episode. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, where we have editors talking about the news with insight and analysis. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi, who want to get this podcast done because they want to get out into the holiday weekend. I'm happy to oblige them. How many times have we wondered out loud these past three years whether Ohio would charge anyone in the massive billion-dollar fraud perpetrated on the state's unemployment office during the pandemic? Layla, we have an answer. What is it? It's actually Lisa. Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) I know. We're all L.A. LA women. women. It's hard. It confuses me. (laughs) Got to expand my type. So anyway, um, yeah, so three people so far have been indicted in Franklin County Common Police Court for filing fake jobless claims for a total of $11 million. And they're saying that this could be just the tip of the iceberg as far as employees of the Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services. So Alana Hamilton, she was an intermittent customer service representative for ODJFS from Columbus. And Lashida McClellan, who owns a couple of uh, start-to-finish learning accounts Academy daycares, they were charged together with 19 counts of theft, telecom fraud, money laundering, and records tampering. The two worked together to alter about 40 unemployment claims for over $1.1 million. McClellan got thousands with her own fake claim, and then she charged others to help them do the same thing. Uh, she had about 12 bank accounts uh, you know, with about a half a million dollars from 34 claims. Two million of the six million in accounts has been recovered. And then there was like $900,000 in cash at her home. And Hamilton, the the ODJFS worker, she received over $57,000 from McClellan through her daycares, but they also both worked independently. Hamilton altered 104 claims for $2.4 million. And McClellan, she you know, faked 86 claims that netted $2.3 million. And that was independent of each other. A third person, Tiffany Wilson of Toledo, she was a subcontractor. She's named in a 21 count indictment. And after getting fired from ODJFS, she used access to the computer system to alter $5 million in claims from November 2020 to June 2021. There are also five others indicted in that. And Ohio Inspector General Randall Meyer says at least a dozen potential fraud cases by employees and contractors, you know, they're looking at that active investigations. They have 50 to 70 additional suspected fraud cases within ODJFS. I I actually feel for the state office on this. During the pandemic, there were a lot of moves made to get people the assistance they needed to cope with it all. There was a, a pretty scary economic time for a lot of people. So a lot was going on to open the doors for the cash to go out. These people are despicable because they took advantage of this effort to help people to enrich themselves, cheating their employer at the same time. Back when this was going on and we were hearing about the fraud, we were all stunned that it could happen. And so many of us who were, were almost victims of it, but 
it was all pointed at overseas. But what's this is distressing. These are Ohioans employed to help people stealing from the system and kind of stabbing it in the back. There's a special place in hell for people who do that. Right, right. And some of these, we don't know how many of these were actual employees as opposed to subcontractors, because when they had that spike in jobless claims, they hired a thousand extra workers to help meet that spike. And maybe these people said, hmm, this is a way to, you know, fleece the government. Where, where has integrity gone? This is one where you would hope for people of good character to do the right thing. They're supposed to be helping people get benefits on the up and up. And instead, they saw a window. Oh, the, 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 the gates are down. The guardrails are down because we're trying to assist people. Let me steal from it profligately and, and pad my bank account. So good for the inspector general for getting this. And it's really heartening to hear that they've got all those additional cases. Uh, I hope all these people get incredibly long prison terms and we never hear from them again. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Northeast Ohio was riveted in May by the disappearance of a Cleveland EMS worker who turned up five days later with a tale of stalking and worse. What did Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Michael Malley have to say about the worker's account Thursday, Layla, when all the charges were dropped against her accused stalker? Yes, Lachelle Jordan is the EMS worker at the heart of this case. Cleveland police and FBI agents launched this massive investigation to find her when she went missing in May. And her family passed out flyers and canvassed the city. It was a whole thing that really took took the uh, uh, really took the uh, headlines. Then the search for her Jordan came to an end when she suddenly appeared in a convenience store on Cleveland's east side and and said she had escaped her captors who had tried to set her on fire. And somewhere in there, police arrested Michael Stennett on stalking charges that accused him of harassing Jordan earlier in the year. Stennett had also been charged with abducting and raping Jordan, and that stemmed from a case a year earlier in May of 2022. So it's kind of unclear exactly what happened behind the scenes in this investigation, but all the charges have now been dropped against Stennett. And prosecutors said that that's because there were many, many inconsistencies in Jordan's story implicating him in in both the stalking and the rape cases. But Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Mike O'Malley was very careful to, to also say that these were very unique circumstances and that he doesn't want survivors of sexual assault to in any way take the outcome of this case to mean that prosecutors would not pursue their cases. And and I really appreciate that. We had worried on this podcast when it appeared that Jordan's story was being scrutinized, that it could have that chilling effect on survivors coming forward. So I think that Mike O'Malley taking that extra step to assure them that that this is uh, this is an outlier was important. Yeah, no prosecutor in Cuyahoga County, no sex crime investigator wants to attack the victim when they report it. They don't want to go after their credibility. They want people who are victims of this crime to come forward, but they also have a responsibility to the accused to make sure that the case is for real. So it's taken a long, long time to get here. It's what is it now? Five months. And they did not go public raising questions about this case. They were very careful not to. But in the final analysis, they've got to do the right thing. If this is made up, what has happened here is is this has caused distress for future victims of sex crimes because it is inevitable that they'll look at this and say, huh, I wonder if they're going to doubt me. 
They don't. I mean, they really don't. If you talk to sex crimes investigators and prosecutors, that is not what they're about. They're about getting sexual abusers. This is a tough case for them. Mm -hmm. That's true. But I also appreciate the way they concluded this. They were very uh, open about Michael Stennett uh, finally having his his name cleared. And that was, you know, obvious. But but you know, they didn't put her through the ringer in a way that would have that chilling effect in the future for anyone who would uh, stutter step before reporting their own case. So I think this was handled in a very professional and um, forthright way. We have talked about the similarities of this case to the one down south where a woman right. did falsely report her abduction and was later charged with a crime. That has not happened in this case. You're listening to right. Today in Ohio. This has become a series of depressing variations on a theme. Laura, where does Ohio, whose governor claims to be all about helping the children, stand nationally in its formula for child care subsidies? We are at the bottom of the barrel again. And I did not realize how bad off Ohio was when we started this series in April. I wanted to look at a local solution to a national problem. And once we started looking at the numbers and started understanding how public subsidies work, we we are really bad. We rank last in the poverty threshold for families to get public subsidies for childcare, and we rank last along with a handful of other states in how the state calculates that subsidy, and that's at 25% of the market rate. And that's what Zachary Smith detailed in this story. He went and looked. Uh, the way the market rate works is they look at what everybody's charging across the state, depending on the quality of the childcare centers, and whatever it is, like Ohio's going to make it the cheapest 25%. That's what they'll cover. So 75% of the child care centers in that area are charging more. It's just, it's just sad that we're, we're last. I mean, yeah. you don't want to be in last place when it comes to investing in children. And it's such a stunner because from the beginning of his first term in office, Mike DeWine has said, I'm the guy that's about children. Everything I do is going to be focused on making life better for Ohio's children. And yet he hasn't addressed this. No. This seems like such a fundamental, easy step to take to help children, especially when they've been awash in money from the from the stimulus. Right. Why haven't they done something about this? Well, the, the feds say you don't have a choice. We talked a little bit about, I think we talked about it on this podcast, about the plan... Uh, there's a rule coming that could raise it to 75% of the requirement. But regardless of whether that passes or not, the feds have already said you got to get it up to 50% by the end of 2024 or incur a penalty. And uh, I think three or four other states already were also in that boat. And like Alaska's already raised it up to the 75 percentile. Uh, yeah, four other states did that. So these are, <laughs> this is just not where we want to be. If we, it's, it's Ohio, Alaska, Colorado, and Georgia were at the bottom. The, the money necessarily, like the total dollars aren't necessarily the same based on how much it costs to provide that childcare. But the way that we calculate it, we were the lowest in the country. And that is really disappointing when you say, you know, we care about children. Well, it's like, well, we don't care about these kids, these kids who, who need public subsidies in order to get quality child care so that their parents can work. I mean, we talk all the time and that's the whole point of the series is that it's good for everyone if kids are in a safe place where they're learning so that their parents can have jobs and get education. So Ohio is worse in this category than states like Tennessee and Alabama. Mississippi. Yeah. Wow. 
It's a it's a national shame, and I, we never hear Mike DeWine address this. He hasn't come out and talked about it once. No, and Maybe. I want to say that we are less than a month of falling off what they're calling the child care cliff. That's federal stimulus money that is about to run out before the end of September, and nobody's addressed that yet. So it could get worse. Wow. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Before he was an Ohio congressman, Max Miller made some headlines by suing his former girlfriend, a former White House press secretary, for defamation over her claims that he abused her. We've heard nothing of this Cuyahoga County lawsuit since. Lisa, what became of it? Well, Congressman Max Miller, the Republican from Rocky River, dropped his defamation suit against Stephanie Grisham, who was his ex-girlfriend. The case was dismissed right before this was going to go to trial. There was a September 25th trial date set for this in Cuyahoga Common Pleas Court. Um, The suit was filed in 2021. It was in response to a Washington Post op-ed piece that Grisham wrote in which she claimed that she was abused and that he became violent near the end of the relationship. She did not name names, but everybody, you know, inferred who it was because she was dating him at the time. Miller had sought $25,000 in compensatory damages and the maximum amount of punitive damages in this suit. He also sought a temporary restraining order to prevent Grisham from repeating her claims in interviews. That was denied by Judge Emily Hagan. Um, Grisham did mention on the CNN show, the lead with Jake Tapper um, talked about it, but again, didn't mention his name. Um, and they, the two of them met, Miller and Grisham met because we were working on Trump's 2016 campaign. Miller is now married to Emily Moreno, who is the daughter of Bernie Moreno, a Cleveland businessman who's running for U.S. Senate. What, what's unsatisfying about this is that the allegations were published. They were in the Washington Post. They, were, they got wide, wide coverage. His lawsuit was a major objection saying it's not true, it's not true, and they settle with nothing reconciled. So what are voters to think? If, if the... There's no retraction of the allegation as part of the settlement. What does that mean? How is a voter supposed to proceed? I think Max Miller is doing a disservice to his constituents by not providing some sort of explanation about what this settlement means. And it was dismissed with prejudice. And I believe that means that they can't refile or right. go back to that. Yeah. And they each are paying each, you know, their own court costs. So nobody, you know, was assessed, you know, the other's court costs. So yeah, this is kind of interesting. Well, normally if you settle it with prejudice, somebody has provided something, or I guess they could have just agreed, we'll go our separate ways. But again, that leaves the voter in the lurch. What are they to think here about Max Miller. He's been an interesting congressman in his first seven, eight months. Um, He has not been the wacko J.D. Vance flamethrower. He seems like he's been pretty deliberate about what he's doing. But this is this leaves a big question mark. And I guess whoever runs against him will bring this up because it's not reconciled. There should have been some sort of reconciliation. He should have insisted on it because he's in public life. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With the downpours of August fully behind us, Layla, where does this region stand on rainfall heading into the final four months of 2023? We're about seven inches above normal for precipitation on the year. Cleveland has had 34.05 inches of precipitation so far, and that's well above the normal amount of 27.14 inches by the end of August. 
Only April and May were below normal, according to the National Weather Service records. By mid-afternoon on Thursday, which was the final day of August, Cleveland had 6.37 inches for August after we got 6.75 inches in July. So normally Cleveland gets just three and a half inches or so in August and and 3.67 in July. So despite that 21-day dry spell back in the spring, we have definitely made up for it and then some with those deluges in July and August. Yeah, I... uh... I, I I think back to those three weeks and we were wondering what would it mean for the crops and the apples? I know, and, right? <laughs> and it's then it's just rain and rain. And, you know, Layla, you mentioned after the last downpour that you had seen somebody was talking or you read somewhere that we've had so much rain that it's loosened the, the soil around the roots of the biggest trees and it really puts them in danger of falling over. And you saw some of that in your town. Right, because we had those crazy winds after all that rain. And we saw that around here in Bay Village where there are tons of giant trees. Some were completely uprooted. I think, uh, you know, we had, my husband took that photo um, that I circulated among you guys uh, that I think it even ran in the paper with the uh, the entire root ball that was uprooted. The tree was on its side and it had pulled up like the entire raised garden bed that the tree was um, you know, or re- whatever retaining wall was was built around it. It's uh, I, I, that's it's crazy how how these these uh, natural forces can can uh, conspire to do something like that. Well, let's hope that our endurance of these downpours was our investment in a spectacular, colorful fall and sunny. <laughs> let's hope. <laughs> right. You're listening to today in Ohio. This one is from earlier in the week, but it's worth talking about. Laura, which Northeast Ohio schools are among the nation's best? And we're talking academics, not football. Correct. Although this is a Friday in the fall, so go whatever team you're cheering for. I don't know how much overlap there is for schools with amazing academics and powerhouse football teams, but there are probably some. So we're talking about students who achieved high scores on state assessments for math, reading, and science, strong results for underserved student performance, focusing on students who are Black, Hispanic, or from low-income households, plus performance on AP, Advanced Placement, or IB, International Baccalaureate exams, plus the curriculum breadth, the graduation rates. So there's a whole ball of things that go into this, and Solon and Rocky River are the ones who ended up highest on the list for Ohio, according to US News, U.S. News and World Report. The highest in the state was Bexley outside, Colum- or, yeah, outside Columbus, but Solon ranks sixth in the state and Rocky River is eight statewide, and we've got a bunch of others in the top 25. Yeah, it's good news. It's the same districts over and over again. Yeah. You keep hoping that their excellence will spread to other districts. Clearly, we have some in our coverage area that know what they're doing. I should point out my wife works for the Solon District, but not in the high school. Uh, but it's it's always Rocky River, Solon, sometimes Orange, sometimes Bay Village. But yeah, when let, do you start to see that spread? Let me give you the rest. So uh, top 25, Chagrin Falls was 16. Aurora was 18. Hudson came just after that at 19. Revere was 23. That's my alma mater. And Bay, number 24. Then we get into Brexview, Broadview Heights, Highland, Kenston, Cleveland's John Hay Early College, which it is always nice to see CMSD schools on this list. Avon Lake, Orange, West Geauga, Avon, Cleveland School of Science and Medicine, and Cuyahoga Heights. So, I mean, there's a big spread around the region, but you're right. I went to Revere and graduated in 98, and we were always so proud that we were at the top. So it's, these are the, these schools have enduring legacies of being good schools. 
Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, when do we hit the alarm bells? How many weeks in a row have we seen significant COVID increases in Ohio? And how high are those numbers? Yeah, Chris, and some experts are already sounding alarm bells and actually telling people to dust off their N95 masks. So the August 31 update for our area, there were 7,821 new cases this week. That's up from 5,361 just a week before. We have had increases for eight consecutive weeks since our low, which was on July 6th, and that was 1,286 cases in one week. This is the first time our area has been over 7,000 new weekly cases since mid-March. The current circulating variant is BA.2.86, and that's been found in one Lorain County patient so far. The CDC is tracking this variant. They say it has distinctive mutations, but there's no evidence so far of it causing more severe illness or death. So since 2020 in Ohio, we've had 3.48 million cases, but we have about 7.6 million residents who've received at least one COVID vaccination. So that's about 68 and a half residents percent of residents aged five and up in Ohio that have at least one vaccination. There's a, a new vaccination coming out in a month or so, but what's distressing is it doesn't cover that new variant. And there's a, a school of thought that's building that it wouldn't. And so they're thinking they should get back to the drawing board pretty quickly to cover it. It's mutated so far. It's, I think there's 30 areas it's mutated where it can evade it. Again, they're not sure that makes it a whole lot more transmissible because it isn't spreading as rapidly as some previous ones, but it's causing concern. I It, it just seems odd that we're, we're r- steadily going up. You keep thinking, well, we'll crest. It won't be, it won't be bad. But I don't know, maybe people have just learned to live with it and figure they'll get sick and they'll get better. And it's not the cause for panic it was three years ago. And it sounds like COVID, you know, is rising in tandem with flu season. So it sounds like we might have a COVID season very, you know, closely aligned with the flu season. And then throw our SV on top of that. Just don't let any deer cough on you. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one thing that does seem to be holding true, it's not complete. They're not completely sure with the new variant is that if you've had COVID or if you're vaccinated, that even though you'll, you'll likely get sick with the new variant, you won't get deathly sick, that mm-hmm. it'll be like the cold that people experience, which is, I think, what people are most concerned about. It's, yeah, we'll all catch colds. We catch colds all winter long, but I don't want to end up in the hospital. I don't want to be in a ventilator. I don't want my life threatened. And the previous immunity seems to help with that. We'll keep tracking those numbers. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Before last December, almost nobody was talking about artificial intelligence. Now, AI is one of the fastest growing job sectors. Layla, what does that mean in Ohio? Well, reporter Zach Smith tells us that AI and machine learning specialists top the list of fastest growing roles in, in the world's largest companies. Companies are seeking workers with expertise and using AI tools. And, and according to job posting data, engineering roles and those working with data ranked high in job postings where employers seek AI skills over the, you know, have been seeking AI skills over the last year. Most of those jobs are in the big cities on the coasts, but there are opportunities here in Ohio coming uh, from this industrial trend. 
all kinds of job classifications are calling for AI skills in their job postings from project managers to accountants and recruiters, logistics and designers. Zach includes in his story a breakdown of what percentage of job postings in each category mention AI aptitude as something they're looking for in their ideal candidate. But so here in Ohio, I'll give you the top three. Number three, scientist, kind of a very broad category, but there were 935 posts uh, under this category that mentioned AI, and that constituted 8.28% of the total job postings in that category. Number two was software engineer, 19,210 total job postings mentioning AI here in Ohio, and that is 8.7% of the total number of postings. And the number one, by a long shot, data analyst, total job postings mentioning AI were 11,571, and that's 23.58% of the available jobs in that sector. So clearly that's one industry that will be dramatically affected by AI moving forward. Yeah, I I guess because it's a useful tool, lots more companies want to use it because it makes them more efficient. And it has come a long way in a short period of time. But we all know from playing with it, it is not reliable. You would not want to put your life in the hands of the AI because it makes colossal mistakes. And it's interesting how many companies are racing into it, even though we're not at a point yet where you can use it for a whole lot of purposes. I mean, it still feels like it's in its infancy. And I, I am surprised to see that nearly a quarter of these data analyst jobs are mentioning that as a requirement when, you know, how, how, how can anyone be expert at at AI uh, related skills when we're, you know, the, the technology is still emerging. Well, Layla, well, you know more about AI than I did. And you were telling me all the things <laughs> it could do. And I started messing around. I actually saw on a literary agent's website yesterday that they do not want AI generated manuscripts. So there are people out there that are writing novels with AI, like full novels. Sure. I thought I had no idea. I'm sure. Yeah. No. First of all, I'm not sure that they would be able to tell <laughs> definitively that these that anything was written by AI, but uh, because I mean, it's all, it generates unique text. But but the 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 uh, application that I was telling Laura about just for our listeners was that you know Laura is a creative writer in her free time, and I was I was telling her that you can use ChatGPT to brainstorm plot points of your novel, and it's very useful, and it's it is not in any way plagiarism or you yeah. know um, and I, cheating the system. It's just giving you ideas, right, and it's right, brilliant. Read the Washington <laughs> Post story yesterday. The humiliating takedown they did of Gannett for using AI to write high school sports stories. They were using it across their their markets. It had the most awkward phrasing. It made the, the whole Gannett chain, including the Columbus Dispatch, the object of universal scorn because the AI could not write good prose. It was terrible. I we, mean, yeah, phrase we, after phrase. And, and even though the vendor, this is in the post story, said, it, it it has wide ranging writing. It used those same awkward phrases over and over again. Oh, no. My favorite was the close encounter of the athletic kind. That was yeah, my there favorite. Were, there were three or four <laughs> others that were very similar to that. I, I, I'm so glad this is not a Washington Post story about a humiliating thing we did. <laughs> I mean, I do not want to be the subject of this. This was awful. And it's more evidence that it's not there I mean, yet. Using AI in journalism for that kind of use, that is such a high risk use of artificial intelligence. 
But when you're just doing something creative for fun, I think it's it's completely useful and and uh, and fun. There is <laughs> no AI used in this podcast. <laughs> you're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Laura, part of your job is to coordinate our stories for long weekends to make sure Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer have a steady stream of new content. We've got a pretty great lineup this weekend. How about a preview of some of the highlights? I put some out on my subtext account this morning because they're so interesting. I saw that. And just to be clear, it's coordinate stories for every day and every weekend, not just long weekends. That'd be great if that were (laughs) just long weekends. But there's all sorts of great stories. We have a story today that went up about the hundreds, the more than 100 homicides in the city with an analysis from Olivia Mitchell and Zachary Smith, where they looked at where these are taking place, who they are, and really shows that the east side uh, east side of Cleveland is seeing the bulk of these. We have a great story from Andrew Tobias that I think people are really going to devour on Sunday about how the Catholic Church is gearing up for the November election to oppose abortion rights and that it resembles a political action committee. We're talking about deploying leaders to high-dollar political fundraisers, campaign contributions, obviously preaching from the pulpit, and why that's legal. And then Caitlin Durbin has a great story about how many kids stayed overnight in county social services last year. It was 503. And how some counties like Trumbull and Lake have tried to make that a lot more comfortable to have homes where people, kids can go when they have nowhere else to go instead of staying in the office building like they do in Cuyahoga County. I should point out that Andrew Tobias story is the result of readers sending us a lot of notes asking for that story. There are people that are Catholic who are quite offended that their church is being political. They think it somehow violates the rules, which I think Andrew's story will show it doesn't. Uh, you can argue whether it's right or wrong all you want, but they're, what they people wanted to know is, is there a legal issues. So this story will help answer that question. Lots to read. It's going to be hot. So pull a chair out in the shade and across the weekend, we hope we give you something to to occupy your time. And enjoy that last weekend of summer before then, you know, it's going to be 90 degrees next week too. (laughs) You've been listening to Today in Ohio. Have a good weekend. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Tuesday.